Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode, guys, and thank you again for joining us. I am incredibly excited to be releasing this episode, and I just think you guys are going to love it. We were joined by Dr. Bill Johnston, who is a doctor and an ENT specialist and surgeon, and a really integrative and holistic practitioner, which is exciting and really fits into our philosophy here at the Three Little Things podcast. I just wanted to let you know also that this episode is a little bit longer than our usual episodes. I didn't want to chop it and change it and cut too much because it's an incredible and really deep conversation. So we just let it go and it's a little bit longer than our usual release episodes. But please enjoy. It is a fantastic episode and I know you will absolutely love it. And just before we get into the good stuff of this episode, I really wanted to start with a quick disclaimer about some of the stuff we talk about in this episode. We touch on a couple of different um, strategies and techniques in navigating health and wellness, and, and particularly regarding sleep. And we also touch on something called fasting. I'm sure many of you have heard about fasting or have dabbled in fasting before. And I just really wanted to quickly point out that whilst we talk about it, and we talk about some of the benefits of things like fasting, it's not always applicable and suitable for everyone. So please, with the information that we we gather and we talk about today, please take it and tailor it to you. But by all means, please take it to your health practitioners and discuss with them first, as each and everything that we talk about in these episodes needs to be tailored to you specifically. Welcome back to another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined with my co-host Lily. And if you're new to our podcast, we want to say a big welcome and thank you for jumping on and listening to another episode. We have another wonderful guest today and we're going to be talking, it's going to be quite a, a wholesome episode, a very holistic episode. We're going to actually cover quite a bit, but our focus mainly being on sleep, um, which is really exciting. So I guess Lily, do you want to, I mean, share a little bit about why we do this podcast, what it's about, and then we can get into introducing our guest. Yes, so we began this late last year, and it came out of um, frustration on my part, really, as the news got worse and worse on TV, on radio, and on mass media. And in the end, I thought, let's have something, a platform, where we can invite guests to come and speak on on how to think, not what to think. And so began our podcast, and our philosophy really is on the triad of health, and the triad being made up of um, how we are structurally, and biomechanically, and also how we are chemically, biochemically, and how we are mentally, emotionally. We began also to introduce words which we we hope one day will make the magazines, so things like um, homeostasis, upregulate, downregulate, vagal tone, sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, mindfulness, the amygdala, and so it goes. We even had an episode on the cerebellum, didn't we, Sarah, and yeah. primitive reflexes. So, you know, we kind of dived everywhere and we had some amazing guests um, help us with this process. Today, we have another amazing guest um, who Sarah will uh, introduce in a moment. So we look forward to hearing what Dr. Bill has to talk to us about. Yeah, so welcome, Bill, first and foremost, and thank you for giving us your time and joining us on this episode. I'm really excited for what we're going to cover today, and I think every person that listens to this is going to be able to take away something, which is what we want, and and a really cool episode to do that. So I guess to start us off, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the listeners. So I want you to share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and kind of how you got there. Sure. Well, uh, thanks very much for inviting me in, guys, and congratulations to you guys putting the time and effort to get this information out there Mm. to people. So, um, yeah, my name's Dr. Bill Johnson. I'm an ENT uh, specialist based up in Hornsby in Sydney, and I've been working in the ENT field for over 20 years. And I was born in Melbourne, did high school in Perth, came to Sydney for uni. So I'm a bit of an Australian hybrid. And I've always had a love of the outdoors and (coughs) sport and ENT's really given me an insight into how the airway affects our, our lives. And throughout my career, I've sort of becoming increasingly interested in the holistic approach to healthcare. So I think Western medicine has got some great strengths. So I think we're excellent at treating ruptured appendixes and ruptured cruciate ligaments and lots of structural issues. But I think when it comes to nutrition and mindfulness and um, 
you know, the holistic approach. I think Western medicine is becoming very compartmentalized. Mm. And I see a lot of patients who go from one specialist to another with headaches or with cough, and they keep getting told, no, it's not asthma, it's not this, it's not that. And, and they get lost mm. in an expensive world of healthcare. And so um, my brother's a, a really good physio, so he's taught me a lot of musculoskeletal medicine, and there, there's a lot of musculoskeletal effects of airway. Yeah. And I suppose through my own, having my own children, I've got three sons and we've been lucky to do lots of sports together over many years and we've been eating organic food for over 20 years and so I've had the opportunity to try and instill health in my kids and, I, and my learning is more and more about learning about other areas and then trying to bring that into my practice. Yeah, and yeah. that's the definition of holistic, right, is about tapping into all of those different areas. And we're going to bring up um, a term for our listeners that they may not have heard before, but functional medicine or functional pillars. And yep. we were talking before we started recording about how these pillars intertwine and, you know, we use them and you touched on that beautifully just then with how you bring it into your work. But talk us through what, what are functional, what, are, what is functional medicine and what are the pillars of functional medicine? Yes, yeah, so, so functional medicine is a branch of Western medicine. It's not something that I'm a specialist in, but it's something I'm fascinated by. Mm. And there are more and more functional medicine GPs around. Um, and obviously, you know, chiropractic is a functional, you know, medical specialty. Yeah. So there's many practitioners in this field. But from a, from a sort of Western medicine perspective, it's all about looking at root cause. Mm. So Western medicine has traditionally been wait till your blood sugar level gets to a certain level and then great, you're a great candidate for metformin. Yeah. Mm. Or wait till your cholesterol gets to a certain level and you're a great candidate for a statin. Yeah. And wait till your hip gets so stuffed that you need to have it replaced. You know what I mean? And so this is the, the Western model of medicine, but functional medicine is all about trying to get disease at its root cause, and that's mental health, our physical health. Um, and, and so if someone's cholesterol starts to rise, to talk to them about their diet and about fasting and exercise and 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 you know, different approaches because I think there's you know when you look at the number of medications that some of our well, all of us mm. you know are asked to be on and, and some of the elderly people mm. in our community I see that we've got a pharmacy near my office and I see them taking these shopping trolleys full of drugs out to the nursing homes yeah. and I just think surely there's a better way to manage health from this. Yeah. So here might be a good place to introduce what we talked about a few episodes ago regarding the bell curve. So we don't want to see anyone in here with a brain tumour, you know, or a heart attack or meningitis or kids with hydrocephalus or interception or a near bursting appendix. So, and I suppose functional medicine tries to keep people out of that um, part of the bell curve. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Mm. And there's some things that are unavoidable. You know, obviously a good diet can maybe reduce the risk of appendicitis, but if you've got appendicitis, that's a surgical problem. You yeah, know that's what right. I mean? Yeah. But I think it's it's probably more that the metabolic disease, mm-hmm. the hypertension, the high cholesterol, the diabetes, and these and these have flow-on effects to increasing rates of Parkinson's disease and dementia. Yeah. So yeah. if we can look after our blood sugar and our body in our from the our you know, from birth, we our, our risk of these degenerative conditions is going to be less mm. in old age. Yeah, and I think more so now, um, and as you said, you know, chiropractically we deal with a lot of this, you know, that sort of um, functional side of things as well. Um, But I think people understand that, you know, movement, mindfulness, nutrition, they're sort of topics that people are much more comfortable talking about, more recognised now. But there's two particularly on the list that I don't think people would be as, um, I guess, like understand as much as being functional parts of medicine, and that is nature and community. So do you want to just quickly touch on those two yeah, so well. obviously I'm, I'm not an expert on this field, this is more of, of my interest, but, but nature, I think one of the big problems we're having with humanity at the moment is we're trying to move ourselves away from nature mm-hmm. and we're trying to, we've sort of thought for a hundred years or so that we're better than nature and I think climate change is telling us now absolutely up front that we're not mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of health issues are, are arising because we're moving away from nature. For example, our microbiome, which is the trillions of bacteria and fungi and viruses that live in our body. Our body's not sterile. Yeah. We don't need to use hand sanitizer every day yeah. to keep the germs away from us because we, we're actually exposed to 10 to the power of 15 viruses per day. Yeah. Mm. And so if you're sitting in a room looking at a device and you're yeah. not getting sunlight and you're not getting in the ocean and you're eating processed food, you're so far away from nature and the longer you spend on those devices, we know the more unhappy you are. Mm. So, but if people can wake up and watch the sunrise and dive in the ocean or not the ocean, but go for a run or, you know, um, 
yeah, it's, it changes your whole microbiome. And a classic example is when people go on holiday. Yes. So after two or three days, people say, oh, I feel great, I'm relaxed. Yeah. And actually your whole biochemistry has changed in the first two or three days of that holiday because you've spent more time with your family, you've connected, yeah. you've had sunlight, you've been in nature yeah. often, and your whole biochemistry changes. Mm. So um, this sort of brings us back to the homeostatic balance of the body, doesn't it? Because um, you're describing someone who's out of sync with, um, with nature and the nature within themselves. Absolutely. And then, yeah, so we had an episode um, last season on inflammation and mm. you would mm. see a lot of people in a sort of pretty chronic inflammatory state once they get to you, Bill, wouldn't, wouldn't they? Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I see, as we'll talk about later from the airway perspective, I see massive inflammation in the mm. airways. Yeah. But... From my functional medicine interest, I realise how much inflammation the body is derived from our gut. Yeah. You know, yeah. and our gut and our food, and that's why nutrition is so important. Um, and if if your listeners are interested in diving deeper into the gut health axis, there's a lot of stuff out there. But there is an amazing American doctor by the name of Dr. Zach Bush, and he's done a lot of work on the and he's done a lot of great scientific studies on the effects of, for example, pesticides in our food chain. Yeah. yeah. And he is a triple board certified medical doctor. So he did palliative care, mm. oncology and endocrinology. And he realized during, you know, he's a very smart guy. And he realized that when he was doing his work as an endocrinologist, that the big pharmaceutical companies were writing most of the grants for the, for the uh, research. And that was all designed to find the next drug. Yeah. And Zach went, hang on, this is not right. I want to find the root cause. So he's actually, after 20 years of training, he's left that field of medicine and he's now doing the most amazing lectures and YouTube videos on a range of subjects, including the effects of glyphosate in our um, food chain. Yeah. And, it, and so I strongly recommend any of our listeners that are interested in learning more about nutrition um, and, and just the, the gut health connection. Dr. Zach Bush is a really good scientific source. Great. And some of his figures are things like we're currently using six billion pounds of glyphosate annually in the world. Wow. Six billion. And that's a water-soluble chemical that takes a long time to be broken down. And it's actually concentrated by the water supply. Yeah. So in the, in the US now, there's glyphosate in the rain. Mm. And the concentration of glyphosate increases in the Midwest of the US down the Mississippi River. And the, the, um, the highest rate of can- of cancer in the US is in the lower reaches of the Mississippi. And do you see any of these um, effects in the human body, Bill, yourself? I mean, how does it manifest? Well, look, in, I mean, glyphosate, I think, is just ubiquitous in our food chain now. Mm. And, and, and I think organic food is a great health initiative. Yeah. And organic food is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best organic food is actually food you grow yourself. Yeah. And I think from an environment and nutrition perspective, we can yeah. all grow food. Um, when we can't all grow food, I mean, some people live in a south-facing apartment with no outside, but, but there's community gardens and, and for example, my, my mum lives in an apartment in Manly and I'm, um, uh, I've been using veggie pods yes, for a few yes. years, so they're amazing things. <laughs> and bought, Shout out to veggie pods. Yeah, yeah, they're, awesome. epic, yeah. yeah they're so good, but I bought, mm. she, mum lives in a nice apartment in Manly and they have got some sun during the day, so I bought her a one metre square veggie pod and I set it up on a veranda. Yeah. And she moves it around, and honestly, she hasn't bought lettuce, herbs, or any of those things for months. Yeah, the thing fantastic. is just exploding with food, and that's one square meter. Yeah, yeah. And you cannot, you cannot buy food that good. No, we well, are speaking to a converted audience. Yeah, here. exactly. Well, yeah. I know. Yeah. But if you pick basil and lettuce and yeah. things from a veggie pod, it's got tastes and aromas that you just can't find anywhere. Mm. Not even organic food in a, you know. Yeah. Mm. So, so, so I think we can all. F- we can all look at growing food. I think it's good for our kids. Yeah, yeah. And it's good for our environment. Mm. Totally. And it's it's something that it's a way of trying to connect back to nature. It's just one of those links, and it's a very important link because yeah. GMO food now they're they're designing grains that are resistant to five pesticides. Mm. And in the US, <laughs> the same companies that produce the grains produce the pesticides. And some of the farmers strange that yeah, I know, yeah, right? And some of the farmers can't get a loan unless they're doing GMO crops. Yeah. So there's this mm. financial cycle that the farmers can't get out of. Yeah. And so, and, and they reckon if we can get the, the demand for organic food up to about 15% of the population, it'll override this processed Amazing. pesticide affected food. So and that's not so high. Is we no, can drive that's that that's demand. So doable. So we can drive that demand. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
as, as I said, you're speaking to a converted audience, and I speak for our audience as well, by the way, Bill. Um, but I just want to touch quickly back on the Western approach to um, healthcare yep. um, and the functional uh, medicine approach. And being Eastern myself, being Chinese, I remember as a kid, one of my uh, aunties being a Chinese um, doctor or TCM doctor, traditional Chinese doctor. And the joke was that in China, um, you actually, the doctor actually pays you if you get sick because they didn't do their job very well. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the joke really was based around functional medicine in Asia, which was, as you say, it's all food based. It's um, breathing. Um, yeah, breathing. Um, meditation. Tai Chi. Yeah. Yeah. Community. You know, and I mm. found that really strange in Australia because um, when I first graduated, one of my my first employers was. Uh, a chiropractor, but also a psychologist um, from his previous training. And he told me one day, he gave me a book to read one day, and he said, uh, I want you to read this book. And I, and I thought, yes, why? He said, because um, I think you have a complex. And when I, when I read it, I thought, mm, okay. And I said, um, what kind of complex do you think I have? And he said, I think you have an inferiority, com inferi inferiority complex. Yes, I can say that. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, wow. It's interesting, and it wasn't until I was a much older adult that I could see what he was saying. So in Asia, we are more um, group people rather than individualistic people. Mm. And because I wasn't displaying um, an attitude of being superior, oh, I was seen I see. as being inferior, like I was being self-deprecating. But you see, the whole Asian thing is that we, we, we fit somewhere, and as a collective, we, we, we move together. Whereas here I find it's um, who sticks out as to who gets the, um, the best cut of whatever it is, you know. So I'm not sure whether it's a Western or Eastern thing, but I have a feeling that um, it might fit into this functional um, medicine approach. Absolutely. Mm. And when you say inferiority, do you mean that, that you were not as sort of, you were, you were talking to your patients more on the same level or what do you Some, think you meant by I was that? giving them, yeah, so I've always been a more collaborative practitioner than... Yep. Um, you know, one who demands you do something. You know, I'm always mm. asking someone, what do you feel you need to do? You know, mm. and um, I just feel if someone takes some more agency over their health, they're actually going to do it. You know, so I'm not going to scare, I don't want to scare anyone into, um, you know, taking organic food. I want them to understand yeah. exactly why, why organic yeah. food is good for you. You know, and as mm. you said, fasting. Actually, do you want to speak to that, Bill, the whole fasting thing? So I think yeah, that's really so, interesting. So I think fasting is a, is a fascinating area. And again, I'm not an expert in this field. It's just my one of my interest areas. But um, obviously, weight gain, you know, obesity is a massive problem. Mm. Um, I think the figures in the US are probably at least 75% of the population are either overweight or obese. Mm. And, the, and the health implications of being overweight are massive, both from a hormonal, structural, insulin... Um, risk of dementia, there's so many risks. And um, so fasting is what something we've actually done naturally as human beings for millions of years. Mm. So food has usually been relatively scarce. So we've, we've killed an animal or we've come across a, you know, a, you know, some ripe fruit and so we've eaten and our body's used to storing the food. And then we're, we're designed to fast. And so our bodies, our insulin and all our hormones are designed to then withdraw from those stores of energy and distribute that to our muscles and we can actually last a long time without eating. So in the industrial age where food has become so plentiful, it's almost become a habit to eat three meals a day and sometimes more and your body gets used to as much food as you give it. Mm. But if you think about it, if you go to bed, at, if you, you know, have an evening meal and have a nice healthy full meal and then you basically lie down for eight hours, that food's all stored up ready for action you don't need to eat when you wake up. It's almost a habit. And, and there's many different ways of approaching fasting. So our listeners will have heard of the 5-2 diet where yeah. you calorie restrict on two days out of five. And there's also the intermittent fasting where we try and go 12, preferably 16 hours without food each day. Yeah. And something that once you get in the habit of doing, it becomes so normal. Yeah. You, don't, you don't get hungry at all. Yeah. And, and you actually never feel, your body, your mind never feels clearer yeah. and mm. your body never feels lighter than when you're fasting. Mm. And you do get a hunger pain in the first few weeks and, mm. you know, but you can get through it. Um, but no matter how busy you are with kids or how busy your, your work-life balance is, there's always time to fast. And, uh, and, and you sit better which 16-hour... 
Well, I mean, it, I think it, it's really going to depend, but I think the most effective one that I've come across would be probably to finish eating by, you know, 8 o'clock at night, mm. ideally. And then, so if we had 16 hours, and then not eat before midday the next day. Mm -hmm. But you obviously need to have fluids when you wake up. You can have tea. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be complete fast. You can have coffee. Yeah. You know, it's all, it's all relative. Yeah. Mm. Um, but to do that regularly, and obviously if, if you're on the weekend and friends have invited you out for breakfast, well, you don't intermittent fast. You go and enjoy a good breakfast. But, yeah. but once you get in the habit of doing it, it just becomes so normal. You're not even hungry. Mm. And, I mean, I obviously work in a busy medical practice, and my... Habit has been that, that I generally finish by 8.30 at night and the food in Hornsby where I work is not awesome. So I get organic salads delivered to our practice by a local excellent chef and it's not overly expensive. And I tend to just have a really nice salad with virgin organic olive oil at about 2.30 in the afternoon and yeah. I feel great till then and I just really look forward to it. Yeah. And then I'm good till dinner. Yeah. But that's my hack on yeah. that, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, um, it's very doable too, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah but... And I suppose, you know, the other thing is preparing food and, you know, if you, it's hard with this time poor lifestyle, mm. but people can, you know, if you cook a big casserole or a big bean dish or a big whatever on a Sunday and you can have portions during the week rather than just going randomly to shops and yep. it's a bit of a mm. magical mystery too as to what sort of food you're going to get in it. Yeah, planning. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously there's more extreme fasting. I heard an interesting podcast recently where people in the US were doing medically guided fasting for up to 40 days and that's extreme mm. i'm not recommending that for our <laughs> listeners um but, but the, the the we might put it in the show notes afterwards actually a link to this podcast yeah, but yeah, it was fascinating right. and um and that the metabolic changes that occurred in these people and they all enjoyed it and for example they had a 95 percent chance of curing hypertension wow. with a 40-day fast yeah and again i'm not suggesting that for our listeners that's extreme yeah um, and that needs to be done under medical supervision, and that's mm. very much one end of the spectrum, but there's much more simple day-to-day yep. -day yep. ways of bringing fasting into your life. But that's a beautiful example of how functional medicine can, you know, when you use the cholesterol example, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more with the sleep stuff as well, but um, nutritionally, we're having an impact on cholesterol, right? So it's that functional medicine, that very holistic approach versus just saying taking a medication exactly. um, and hoping for the best. So there are options, and I don't think it's ever, as you said, a one thing fits everyone. No. Um, but, yeah, I think, yeah, there's definitely some amazing fasting options out there. and Absolutely. Um, yeah, ways that people can and start to implement yeah. it in their day. Yeah. In our previous podcast, one of our guests talked about um, cortisone and cortisol levels and so on. So it would fit quite nicely with what you're talking about. Mm. But I wanted to ask you a question. What was, was there a seminal moment when you decided to take a sidestep from the whole Western approach to a different, more functional No, I approach? think for me it's been more gradual. Yeah. Yeah, so I think probably the initial thing for me was with working with my brother who's a great physio and, and we don't get taught much musculoskeletal medicine as you guys recognize in mm. your work when you see the Western medicine approach mm. to functional medicine, that's another whole talk, doing MRIs <laughs> for back pain that's, that's due to you know pelvic tilt and leg leg discrepancy and etc. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And everyone focuses on their bulging disc. Yes. Um, and so I suppose my brother initially educated me on doing a thorough head and neck musculoskeletal examination. That's enabled me to find causes of facial pain and headaches. Um, you know, so that's probably where I started. And then, and then, some of the people we'll talk about through the podcast, they're, they're authors and podcasters that have just educated you. And once you start to open your mind to these areas of medicine then you just can't get enough of it and you just get drawn mm. from one to another yeah amazing. and the thing is the whole pathology um, discussion is very fearful isn't it because I, I will say anyone who walks in here with a headache um, my first lots of screening will be to do with um, looking at cranial nerves um, have you got a space occupying lesion is it yep. a brain tumor you know and of course 99% of the Absolutely. time, no one Absolutely. has it. But if I was to miss it, you know, that would mm. be bad for everybody, you know? Oh, so, absolutely. I oh, know this. Yeah. You know, we need to, Western medicine has got a huge role to play in screening mm -hmm. people for all of these things. Yeah. But there's a lot of people out there who've had a, a CT scan or an MRI for their headaches and they know that there's nothing, you know, nothing, mm. you know, not a, an intracerebral mass. Mm. Yeah. But now they need to get to the root cause. And, and, exactly. and as you guys well know, cervical neck tension is a massive mm. cause massive. of headaches. Yeah. It's under-recognized and, and poorly treated. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And where I met you, Bill, was this, uh, this great sleep conference or seminar. And um, that we want to come to because this is your yep. area of expertise and, and yep. breathing, you know, and ENT. So yep. would you like to speak to that? 
Yeah, so I suppose, um, you know, obviously one of the pillars of functional medicine and, and general health is sleep yeah. and breathing. So mm-hmm. as an ENT, that's where I sort of have my main area of being able to meet patients with these issues. And then obviously I can focus on that, mm-hmm. the anatomical and functional side, but then I can also introduce them to these other areas. So I suppose if we're going to talk about sleep and breathing, the, you know, you should be able to breathe well through your nose day and night. Mm-hmm. Um, heavy snoring and apneas at night is not normal. And sleep disordered breathing is a spectrum. So there's a good number of our listeners that will be sleeping well at night. They'll be breathing through the nose with their mouth closed. They're getting good quality sleep. And they are not on the sleep disordered spectrum. Mm-hmm. They've got good sleep and, and good airway. But there'll be a proportion of our listeners who might be, they might have a history of nasal allergy or maybe a rugby injury to their nose <laughs> 20 years ago, and they might find that their snoring has slowly progressed through adult life. They might find that they breathe well during the day, but they always or often wake up congested in the mornings. Yeah. Because um, the nasal anatomy is such that we have a nasal septum, which is the cartilage in the middle of the nose. We have what we call the inferior nasal turbinates in the side wall of the nose. And this is a major cause of issues, particularly in our increasing tendency to allergies, you know, dust mite environmental allergies. Um, and when we lie down in bed at night, for example, inferior turbinates, which are the little warming bones that sit in the sidewall of the nose, they're made of a combination of bone and soft tissue. And either because of allergies or viruses or even just the, the actual process of laying flat, they become more congested. Mm-hmm. And some of our patients notice that they might lie on one side and that side of the nose blocks and they roll to the other side and that blocks and they might wake in the morning with a dry mouth. And that's maybe not a big deal, but that can have effects on their posture. Um, And then so obviously there's mouth breathing, which can be quiet. Then you can have noisy mouth breathing. You can have what we call social snoring, which is where you're driving your partner crazy (laughs) and upsetting their quality of sleep. You mean antisocial? Antisocial snoring. And that tends to really come to a head, particularly when the first or second child arrives. (laughs) And there's there's waking through the night and suddenly, suddenly you're dream partner is keeping you awake after you've been up for the kids yeah. either yeah. either the male or the female has been up for the kids so we do see a lot of young mothers and fathers coming in because of partner mm. issues and so heavy snoring obviously any form of snoring is not the best sleep mm-hmm. and then there's a condition which all of our listeners will have heard of which is sleep apnea and that can be mild moderate or severe and sleep apnea occurs when you're not only snoring but you're actually stopping breathing at night time and that's because when we sleep, our, the muscles of our airway relax. And depending on <clears throat> our weight and our anatomy, the airway can variably collapse. Mm. And some patients get collapse of their airway 60 times an hour. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can have an apnea hypopnea index on a sleep study of 60 and above. Wow. So that means they're stopping breathing almost every minute. Yeah. And when you stop breathing, your body has to make adjustments. So you have to partially wake up to reestablish airflow. Yeah. And, and you've almost got to bring tension back to the muscles of the airway to open it so that you can continue sleeping. So these the patients at the more severe end of the spectrum, they are constantly, they might sleep for 10 or 12 hours, mm. but they're not sleeping okay. deeply. Yeah. So sleep is designed so that we go to sleep and then we go into a deep sleep and we stay in that deep sleep for a number of hours and we come out refreshed. Mm. But if you're on the sleep disordered spectrum, the further you are on the spectrum, the less time you spend having deep sleep and the worse you wake up feeling. Which is just a massive cascade. Like, you know, exactly. having poor quality sleep, just everything else seems to crumble after that, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and particularly mouth breathing at night, that stimulates what we call the sympathetic nervous system, which is one of the things mm. you guys have touched on. So for your body, if your airway, say your tongue base is collapsing at night so you're not breathing, your, your body feels like someone's strangling you. Mm. Yeah. And so your primitive reflexes say, hang on, someone's strangling mm. you. So what you do, your body pumps out adrenaline, yeah. your heart rate goes up, your respiratory rate goes up, your brain's stimulated into fight and flight. Yeah. So you can have a whole night of terrible sleep, terrible breathing, your adrenaline's on fire, and you'll, they, usually these patients wake up super quickly in the morning because they're not coming out of a deep sleep, so they sort of open their eyes mm-hmm. and they often not be able to get back to sleep. Some wake with headaches, yeah. and they often wake not feeling refreshed from sleep. Mm-hmm. And that, as we talked about before we started the podcast, that can start a cascade. So if you're not getting good quality sleep, then you don't have good energy during the day. If you don't have good energy during the day, you're drawn to sugary energy producing foods, which you have to have regularly to bolster energy to get through your working day. Mm 
mm. and that leads to weight gain and the more weight you put on the worse your sleep apnea gets and it can it's be a real cycle. negative feedback yeah. and people can think oh I'm too busy to do this or I don't want a CPAP machine or um, you know, I can't have a day off to have a you know to go and see a doctor um, yeah but we can talk about investigations of it but for example sleep studies now can be done at home yeah oh you mentioned that in the seminar yeah, yeah very clever so yeah. so if people want to look into these sort of problems obviously they can they can research themselves they can talk to their GP um, Okay, so yeah. during that seminar, there were a couple of really interesting things. Um, what I didn't get to ask during that weekend was um, the sleep apnea, does it seem to fall into any of the particular phases of sleep? You know, we sort of covered maybe four sleep phases that day. Yeah. Does it seem to be more prevalent in a certain phase? Probably more in the deeper phase. In the deeper phase. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. In, in the REM sleep, because that's when the muscles are most relaxed. relaxed. Right, yeah. right. And then um, maybe you could give us a bit of a case study in a moment, Bill, regarding um, the typical... So this is going to be an adult sleep. Um, yeah. Adult yeah, we're not going to talk about kids children, today, even yeah. though these... These problems equally apply to children. Mm. That's right. But then um, you gave some interesting strategies um, at that seminar, but also you know, pre-recording. Mm -hmm. And um, you were discussing mandibular splints and um, yeah. in the seminar, some interesting micropore tape as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of alternatives. Well, what maybe a good way to, to work through this subject would be I could just talk about a typical patient who presents yep. to me with common problems. And mm. obviously, and then I can just run through you know, how I assess that patient and what treatment options I discuss with them, just to give the listeners a bit of a broad overview of what symptoms to look for and, yeah. and, and what treatment options they might be able to consider. Mm. Yeah. So let's take a stereotypical uh, case, uh, a middle-aged person, I won't say male or female, <laughs> um, possibly a nasal injury at a younger age, um, steadily put on weight since the kids were born, um, currently in their mid-40s, recently started on an antihypertensive medication because the blood pressure's up, um, cholesterol's borderline, um, their partner's been aware of increasing tendency to loud snoring and probable apneas, because mm -hmm. partners are pretty good. Mm. Um, and, and the patient is sent to me because of severe snoring and, and possible sleep apnea, and, and obviously there's GPs can look into this problem, dentists doing a lot of work with snoring, respiratory physicians look at sleep apnea and we specialize in looking at the airway. Yeah. So we examine the patient's airway. So the way I'd approach these patients, I'd have a good chat about their history. We'd look at um, you know any history of any nasal allergies, whether they have an awareness of nasal obstruction, do they mouth breathe at night, um, do they have headaches, do they awake refreshed from sleep, how much weight have they put on, um, what do they feel like in the mornings, do they ever wake with a headache? These are all classic symptoms of sleep apnea. Mm. And then I'd ask them about what medications they take, how much exercise they're doing, what's their work-life balance like, um, you know, what's their nutrition like. And then, then we'd move on to examination. So we obviously do a full head and neck examination. We check their ears to make sure they don't have domestic deafness as well as snoring. Because <laughs> they go hand in hand. <laughs> um, ears are normally usually normal and then it's common to have nasal issues mm. so some of the anatomical things would be what we call a deviated nasal septum and actually 75 percent of the population have a deviated septum Whoa. but so so that's not the problem but if it's associated with either a, a previous history of allergies or an ongoing history of allergies because mm -hmm. that's when you get the inferior nasal turbinates in the side wall of the nose tending to swell yeah and uh, patients have often used rhinocord or nasonix or these sort of steroid sprays over years but a lot of snorers have some degree of nasal issue, not all. Um, then we look at the oral cavity, we look at their dentition, we look at their tongue, their tonsils. We use a fibre optic scope to very gently examine their whole airway internally, and that's not a painful thing now. We've got the scopes down to 2.5 millimetres in diameter. Wow. So um, it shouldn't be a painful mm. process at all. Um, very occasionally, sleep apnea can present with a, a tumour. And yeah. I don't want our listeners to think they've got a tumour if they're snoring, because that's incredibly uncommon. But yeah, if particularly if you know if there's any throat difficulty swallowing, swallowing or pain on swallowing, then you've always got to have a, a yeah. head and neck examination. Um, and the other thing to look at is someone's facial profile. So if we look at our facial profile, facial profile side on, uh, the little bit of skin just below our nose and the skin on the tip of our jaw should be in the same vertical line if we mm -hmm. look side on. Mm -hmm. But a lot of patients who've been long-term mouth breathers, their yes. lower jaw hasn't grown as far forward. And medically, we call that retronathia. Mm -hmm. So if, one, if our listeners look in the side on the, at their profile from the side or take a selfie, 
if you look at your position of your jaw, relative, the jaw should come to the skin just below the very base of the nose. There should be a same vertical line. And if it isn't, then you, attached to your jaw is the big muscle of the tongue. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks of their tongue as the thing that licks ice blocks, but it's actually a ball of muscle yeah. the size of a cricket ball. It's attached to the inner aspect of the jaw. And if your jaw hasn't grown as far forward as it, you know, through adolescence and early adulthood, then your tongue base can fall back more easily on the airway. Interesting. Major cause of snoring and sleep apnea. Right. So facial structure. And if we ever get a chance to talk about children on a future podcast, we can talk about how mouth breathing in childhood can lead to this problem. Yes, yeah. totally. So, so in adult, then would you describe a prescribe a mandibular splint? Yeah, so, so, so let's move on to treatment options. So ah. it's always going to depend on on the particular patient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some patients, for example, have severe nasal airway obstruction and they've got a, a normal BMI, mm -hmm. they've got a pr pretty good craniofacial um, uh, profile. So these patients might be great candidates for nasal surgery to either straighten their nasal septum or reduce the size of the turbinates. Um, and just to briefly talk about the surgery, it's done as, under a general anaesthetic. It takes about 45 minutes. If patients have sleep apnea, it's done as a one-night stay in hospital. Yeah. Uh, day surgery for the non-sleep apnea patients and for patients who've had lifetime of allergy treatment and failed to get good nasal airflow we do have really good surgery now to improve their airflow mm. if you have severe sleep apnea it's not a cure at all and we'll talk about the other treatment options but but improved nasal airflow is definitely something we have a fairly low threshold for offering patients with sleep disordered breathing um, obviously the medical treatments often by the time I see the patients they've used Nasonex and they've tried to avoid dust mites and but obviously with allergy sufferers, it's so important to get an allergy test done. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to try and avoid dust mites. And you can see allergists to look at desensitization, which is a process where we um, bombard the immune system with the thing we're most allergic to. For example, we can get drops to put under the tongue if we've got a dust mite allergy. And over a two or three year period, if the patients are having dust mite drops under their tongue every morning, sometimes we can burn the process out. Mm. And that's done under the care of an allergist. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so from a nasal perspective, we talk about allergy avoidance, we talk about sprays, and we talk about surgery if it's a severe case. Yeah. Now, what are the other treatment options for snoring? Well, weight loss is often very important, and we've touched on, um, on fasting. Yeah. Um, also, I often discuss with my patients keto diets. Mm -hmm. You know, I think carbohydrates, particularly gluten. Yeah. So gluten is a, is a problem food. It's a problem because there's a lot of um, pesticides in, in wheat mm. these days. It's also got what we call a very high glycemic index. So wheat gets converted to sugar. So when you have a high carb or high bread or wheat intake, when you have bread you feel great, but, but your blood sugar yeah. goes up really high and then it plummets and, it drops, yeah. and you get hung, you're hungry quite quickly yeah. afterwards. So I'll talk to patients about just a brief overview of what I think can help with weight loss. Mm -hmm. And then depending on their anatomy, there is a device called a mandibular advancement splint and this can be effective in, in a lot of cases of snoring and mild to moderate sleep apnea. And so this device is called an, a MAS or a mandibular advancement splint. It's provided by dentists, usually dentists who have more of a special interest. Yeah. So not all general dentists are happy to provide these devices, but the, the devices are basically like a, a, like a rugby mouth guard. Yep. And they're designed to lift the lower jaw forward during sleep and they usually only lift the jaw forward by five to eight millimeters, mm -hmm. but that's enough to lift the tongue base forward from the back of the throat by five to eight millimeters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so for a lot of social snorers without severe sleep apnea, the mandibular advancement splint can be a great device. And if, if any of our listeners decide to have one of these devices fitted, you don't have to wear it every night. Mm. And so sometimes, for example, with young families, sleep patterns can be good and bad. <laughs> and so sometimes you might be more elbowed into using the device <laughs> than other times. So just There's because so many listeners that I know will be listening to that going, I need my partner <laughs> right, to get one exactly, of those now. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's something they can Google and they can check with their local dentist and, and local providers, but they're very successful. And um, there are some devices you can get online quite mm -hmm. cheaply, but they tend to be not as comfortable and not as effective. Yeah. But, but as a screening tool, you can spend 30 or $40 online and, and you could try something mm. and see, if, see what benefit can be achieved. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, obviously with all our modern technology now, there's obviously lots of apps that you can do to monitor your snoring. And if some of our listeners are worried about their snoring, and they can, they can use, I think Snore Lab is one of them, mm -hmm. um, and it actually records the snoring and it gives you graphs of how bad it was and, and records it. 
And it's something they could even do with their GP. They could use Snorlab for a while and they could take it along to their GP and play the snoring to their GP just to give the GP an idea of how severe the problem is. Yeah. And uh, it can be a way of partners proving to their partners <laughs> how bad the problem is. So there's a lot of technology out there now which can help. Yeah. Um, in terms of other treatment options, well, look, nasal CPAP is very important to mention. It's the gold standard of treatment for moderate to severe sleep apnea. And what a nasal CPAP device is, it's a machine that's fitted over the nose or mouth or both. Um, it's usually only fitted after a sleep study has been done. Yeah. Um, and it's important that listeners know that it is very effective, but it's by no means the only treatment option. Mm. Um, and, what, and some people can't face the idea of this device, but what is it? It's a mask. They're actually very quiet now, so they're not noisy, they're quite mobile. They do require an electrical supply, so they're not great when you're camping. Um, but, but what they are is they're basically a mask that's strapped to the face and um, it provides a column of air. So it's a, it's a positive pressure. Yeah. So and it, it's a pneumatic splint, so it's a column of air that's splinting the airway open during sleep. And so if you've got nasal airway obstruction or tongue-based collapse, then the, the air column holds the airway open and, and reduces snoring and really improves quality of sleep. And for moderate to severe sleep apnea, it, it is very effective. Um, however, the compliance rate, and I think compliance is defined as wearing it for more than six hours a night, five or six nights a week, it's, a, it's an approximate, but sometimes the compliance rate will only be around 70%. Mm. So not everyone can tolerate it. There can, mm. get, there can be air escape. We definitely offer nasal surgery to patients who need CPAP and particularly they're getting a lot of air escape. Often, you know, the nose is the valve, if you like, through which the air is largely entering the body. And we, I definitely say to quite a few sleep apnea patients, look, we can, I can improve your nasal breathing from four out of 10 to eight out of 10. It's not gonna cure your sleep apnea, but it will let your nasal CPAP device work at a lower pressure. Mm-hmm. And if patients are very overweight, I say, look, for you, nasal CPAP might not be forever. Mm-hmm. If we can get you on CPAP for six or 12 months, get your eating better, if you lose, 15, 20 kilos, mm. you have another sleep study. The whole result mm. changes. Mm. And is that quite a common pattern, as in like someone that, that might be using one of these machines, is it usually a long-term thing or is it usually, let's set a plan where, yes, we're going to use the machine, but we're going to do all these other factors with the hope that, or with the aim to have you off the machine and sleep. Absolutely. Well, look, yeah. look, it's a bit hard to give figures on that, but, yep. but my gut feeling is there are definitely a lot of people who can turn it around and particularly when you go for this holistic approach. Yeah, yeah. it's very hopeful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Bill, can we touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which I was a bit excited about, the CO2 um, set point in people's bodies and um, yep. panic attacks, mm, yeah. and you mentioned Buteco yep. as well. Yeah, yeah sure. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of, this is a slightly different area, so we're moving yeah. away from snoring now, we're staying in the breathing space, but obviously breathing is something that in Eastern medicine has been a focus for years, as mm. you touched on earlier, Lily. So yeah. Chinese medicine, the breath has been important yeah. for thousands of years, you know, and that's what Tai Chi and so many Eastern practices are all about, aren't they? Yoga. The breath, yeah. The breath. Mm. Um, and and in, 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 Western, in our Western world, the breath's been forgotten. And there's a number of factors that are making our breathing patterns worse. Mm. And those factors include increasing incidence of allergies, Mm-hmm. and environmental allergies and food allergies. So there's more children and people around and just our environment changing. So there's more people with blocked noses and there's more mouth breathing going on. Um, and, and mouth breathing is a very poor pattern of breathing. And um, just to touch on mouth breathing quickly. So if you're breathing through your mouth during exercise, your, your um, oxygenation of your body is 20% less efficient. So all of our listeners, when they're doing aerobic exercise, should be driving everything they can through their nose. So when you jump on the treadmill, when you're cycling, when you're running, obviously Mm. not swimming, swimming is a combined thing, but there's a gas produced in the sinuses called nitric oxide. And when you're breathing in through sleep and through exercise through your nose, you get nitric oxide in, in, in your inspired air in the appropriate levels. And nitric oxide is a natural bronchodilator. So not only does it give better oxygen transmission in the lungs, but it actually distributes the oxygen to your muscles more efficiently. So mm. if, you're, if any of our listeners go to the gym and regularly do a spin class or regularly do skipping or whatever their regular aerobic exercises are, if they've been habitually using their mouth because they're exercising, then if they can start to train themselves to use their nose, 
they're going to find their heart rate doesn't rise mm. as much and they're not going to puff as much and they're going to, they're going to last a lot longer. Interesting. That's yeah, so, so mouth breathing has, I'll get back to the breathing pattern in a minute, but just, so mouth breathing really affects our oxygenation of our body. It also affects our posture. So this is important for the chiropractic world and, and for people in general. There's a lot of our listeners will be sitting out there with chronically tight necks. Now, if you are mouth breathing at night time, mm. your body makes postural adjustments. So postural adjustment one is to push the neck forward and postural adjustment two is to open the mouth slightly and it can be quite subtle. But if you mouth breathe most nights, that means your body is spending a good proportion of each day in a head forward posture. Mm. Okay. And, and that can lead to chronic cervicalneck tension, which you guys would see all the time. Yeah. Mm. And chronic cervicalneck tension is probably one of the most common causes of headache and patients experience a lot of facial pressure headaches they can be over the sinuses over mm -hmm. the temples even it's often associated with pressure around the ears yeah because this because unfortunately if you're mouth breathing at night you tend to have a very tight neck and you're also more likely to clench your jaw because bruxism which is jaw clenching when we do that we actually bring our tongue base forward yeah which allows more air through the mouth yeah so you've got no idea how many mouth breathers sit in front of me in my office and I'm going through the history and I say do you get a tight neck? And they go, oh yeah, that's because my husband's a hmm. pain in the backside or I, I use um, computers eight hours a day. Yeah. And I say, do you clench your jaw? And they go, oh, I've always clenched my jaw. And they've always, we've all got reasons for things, but mm. I think mouth breathing is a really under-recognized cause of cervical neck and jaw tension. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think then, as you touched on, they're like made worse by a lot more sedentary jobs where we are sitting in the computer and COVID, we're encouraging that forward head posture. Home. Yeah, and so that's why it's great to work with chiropractors and physiotherapists and dentists yeah. because we're, you know, good medical care, as Lily touched on, is all about collaborative care. Yes, and I get much more enjoyment out of because you need a team. You know, if I see a patient with chronic mouth breathing with neck and jaw problems. I say to them, well, look, these are the options for treating your, your mouth breathing. There's mm -hmm. allergy avoidance, sprays, and possibly surgery. But we need to get you into a good physical therapist. You need to go and see your chiropractor or see your physiotherapist. You need to, we need to work on your posture. Mm. You know, you need to use a myosphere, which is one of those balls that, you know, you need to be rolling out your pecs and your neck for 10 minutes before bed every night. Yeah. You know, you've got to start working on your neck. And, and I'll often get the patients to see a subspecialist dentist and have their jaw assessed because... Patients can all, the same splint that can reduce snoring can also be designed to reduce clenching at night. Yeah, great. So a lot of my patients need the dual bite block. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's been so refreshing because you've covered all oh, the function, the pillars of functional medicine, you know, so sleep, movement, nutrition, mindfulness, nature and community. It's just been a tour de force this morning. And, mm. and I really feel one of the root causes, well, many of the root causes start in childhood. So um, we are going to actually um, approach you in the near future for um, children. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Because so many things you, you are talking about just go, wow. Can well, we begin kids this is another whole Pandora box. At yeah. birth, you know, I mean, you know, mm. I'm a pediatric chiro, did my master's in pediatrics, so we see a lot of baby here from um, day one, you know. Yeah. So, so we look for things like tongue tie, breathing, breastfeeding. Mm. Yeah. You know, push them off to the, um, you know, dentist to have it snipped if that's necessary. And you see a lot of um, kids from a young age begin to mouth breathe mm. and gee when you like to stop it mm. right yeah, well, there it needs and then. To be checked. Well even yeah. and even like kind of onto that as well, once kids start eating and talking a oh, lot more that the jaw changes, the chewing. There's just Absolutely. so much there that we can like, tap into. Give them a cutlet and yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> I mean sorry, are you a vegan? Beg your pardon. No, not even close. I've been known to barbecue I'm known to barbecue the old tomahawk steak, but not regularly. Okay, fine. All right. I'll just touch on one last thing I, yes. I got distracted with mouth breathing there, but mm. just quickly to go back to the breath. Yes. So I think this is really important to touch on this. Unless yeah. are we out of time? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Yeah. So, so with the breath. So, just going back to, I got distracted into this mouth breathing discussion. But mm. so the, we could talk about the breath as our pattern of breathing, and in Eastern, you know, philosophy and Eastern medicine for for thousands of years in India and China, we've been aware of how important the breath is. And I started to say that in Western world, we've lost contact with our breath. And, and so, to, just to talk a little bit about breath, so one of the commonest causes of feeling anxious during the day, and one of the commonest issues we have with, and, and there is unfortunately an increasing incidence of anxiety in our whole population, and the way we breathe has a massive effect on our autonomic nervous system. Yes. Okay, so 
the, the, the proper way to breathe is to breathe slowly through our nose. Mm -hmm. So the ideal breath, breath rate is about six breaths per minute, <coughs> excuse me, which means we breathe in really slowly through our nose for say four or five, and we breathe out really slowly through our nose, and you, you're meant to be breathing so lightly that you can't even feel or hear the air move, and then you, and then you rest. And if you breathe at that rate, your CO2, which is the gas that we're meant to be blowing out, that we produce in our bodies, the CO2 sits at a relatively high rate. And, and when your CO2 is at a high rate, your whole nervous system is much more relaxed. Mm. So slow breathing and, and controlling your breath is a pillar of maintaining balance in our nervous system. So driving up or down the CO2, sorry. The, the, the CO2 rises ah. with slower respiration. Okay. Because... But that's a good thing. Yeah. It's healthy to have a high CO, not not a high CO two when you've got, you know, you know COPD from years of smoking. That's an excessively high. But, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, most patients with anxiety or nasal allergies, and then if they're mouth breathing constantly, have got a quite a low CO two level, and that CO two level gets set by months and months of breathing too regularly, and if we're rushing around through our day. We wake up in the morning and we look at our phone and we rush to work or we rush to school and, and we're looking at screens all the time which are quite stimulating mm. um, <clears throat> and we're not touching the pillars of health, then we can get in a, and, and also with social media, all the pressures mm. that come with that, mm. pressures of life financially, we can get into a bad breathing pattern where we might be breathing at not six breaths a minute, we might be breathing at 12 breaths a minute mm. or 13 or 14. And that's, that's something you can't perceive yourself and you won't notice it directly with, a, pa with a, a patient or a friend. But what it means, it means that your nervous system is never fully relaxed. And a lot of our chronically anxious people in our community have a chronically low CO2, so they're always over breathing. And then when their anxiety gets worse, the first reaction is to over breathe more and the, and the lower your CO2 to a greater level. And a panic attack is the ultimate um, example of this mm. because a panic attack is basically a patient who's rapidly over breathing and their CO2 goes into their boots mm. and they get pins and needles in their hands, they get imbalance, dizziness, yeah. a dry mouth and that's a panic attack. So a panic attack is the, if you like, the, the worst end of the over breathing spectrum. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and so, yeah. yeah, so in terms of how can we work on our breathing, well there's many ways to do it, but the first thing is to become aware of it. And there's some really good resources. There's a, a great book I've read recently, <clears throat> and there's some great podcasts as well, called The um, Oxygen Advantage, which is a book by Patrick McEwen. And, and there's many ways to look at breathing, but this is just one of them. And Patrick McEwen is an, is an expert on butaco breathing techniques. And he, in the book, he just describes how important it is to have a good, um, you know, a proper rate of breathing, a proper technique of breathing. and and how it can, we can even improve our nasal airflow by using our nose. Mm. And he talks about an area that's gaining more popularities is taping our mouths at night. And I don't recommend this for our <laughs> listeners, um, for all listeners, because um, it's not for everyone. If your nose is that blocked, it's not going to work. But um, yeah, there is a, a theory and there's a lot of science now going to try and improve this, but your nose is like a lot of parts of your body. If you don't use it, you lose it. And so by using a tape, for example, there's a tape called Micropore Tape. Mm -hmm. It's available from the pharmacy and you can start to tape vertically, which is where you tape in the same direction as your nose, just across the lips. And then and in time it can become horizontal. And some patients can really improve their quality of sleep and improve their nasal airflow at night by taping. If you've got a severe structural problem or a severe problem, it won't fix it, but it can definitely improve the situation for some people. And the other really important thing that's touched on in this book is that there's exercises we can do to train ourselves to slow down our rate of breathing and to have our brain get used to a high level of CO2 because mm. our CO2 is set over years. And there's a test that our listeners can do if you take a normal breath in and take a normal breath out and hold it. And you can even do this in our work, but just, just say you're sitting relaxed, you take a normal breath in and a normal breath out and hold your breath. And you can time how long it takes until you feel like you need to take another breath. This test is called the BOLT test. And if you're over breathing, you'll want to breathe in less than 15 seconds. So some people feel like they need to take another breath after eight or nine seconds because they're breathing so frequently and their CO2 has been set at such a low level. So this is a test our listeners can do on themselves at home. Mm -hmm. 
And if they find that, and, and ideally in this book, Patrick McEwen says we should be aiming for a, for a bolt score of between 20 and 40 seconds. So when you've trained yourself to be a really slow, relaxed breather, then you can, your body is, is set a higher, much more healthy level of CO2. And that, can, that changed our whole nervous system during mm. the day and at night. Yeah. It even affects sleep. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously a pattern, right? It's something that we're it's a we're not consciously aware of most of the time. So to correct that pattern, as you yep. said, bringing awareness to it, we've got yep. that bulk score now. Say it's yep. you know fifteen seconds, like you said, on that um, lower side. Yep. Is it about patients being consciously aware of that and retraining that pattern, Absolutely. so consciously practicing it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, he talks about different techniques. One technique is. And you can do it when you're walking along. Is when you're walking along, is you actually pinch your nose, mm -hmm. and you see how many steps you can take before you need another breath. And and it's just you can train yourself walking to school, walking mm. to uni, yeah. whatever. And yeah. so you, what you do is you're training your body to tolerate a higher, a healthier level of CO2, CO2. which slows your breathing down. And 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 uh, yeah, and you can you know you can train yourself to do 60 or 80 steps without needing breath in time. Mm. We've got quite a few little surfers in here, and uh, we used to sponsor Pam Burridge, and you'd be too young to know who she is. Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> anyway, so Anthony, my husband, used to spon uh, sponsor Pam Burridge, and she, she contacted me a couple of, well, several months ago, and there was a guy doing a breathing um, workshop in Manly, Wim Hof. So lots of surfers. Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, a lot of surfers do his technique because if you're held under, you know, for mm. a number of um, yeah. seconds, you want to come up alive. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. So you're training so your body to tolerate yeah. a high CO2. And, mm. and there's many different breathing techniques. So if you mm. take those, only one of them. And you probably need different breathing techniques for different parts of your life. Yeah. But your baseline breathing, if it's really slow nasal breathing, and it, it also helps if we get nervous doing things. Like if there's any things in life that we're nervous about doing, public speaking or procedures if we're proceduralists or whatever mm. so when you're operating as a surgeon we want to keep our breath rate slow because mm. you, when you've got a low breath rate when you're operating you're calmer yeah. you make better decisions yeah. you've got no tremor yeah and that Amazing. applies to all of our lives yeah look we, we <sighs> actually have a few young patients who i do know see you for grommets and all that so we'll park that discussion about children till yeah. the next yes. time but yeah Gee, Bill, um, amazing. And yeah. you will have a list of podcasts and um, books, I'm sure that... Yes, and we will, we will yeah. add them into our show notes. I've jotted most of them down, but um, yeah. we'll go over that and yep. put them in our show notes, and definitely. So which school were you at in Perth? Because I was at school in Perth too. I was John 23rd. Okay. Good Catholic boy. Yeah, good man. <laughs> also NLC, not good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Bill, that's been an incredible episode and there's just so much that I can take out of it. Yeah, we are going to jump to your three little things. So okay. um, share with our audience. I mean, they're going to take so much more than three little things away from this episode. Mm. But to wrap it all up, share your three little things with our okay. audience. Well, guys, thanks again for having me today. I think it's fantastic, again, that you guys are putting in the effort and making the time to get this sort of information out there for your mm. listeners. Um, so my little th three little things. The first thing... First bit of advice I have for your listeners is to live in the moment. And I think so much worry in life comes from projecting forward mm. or bringing baggage from the past. And at the end of the day, life is, is actually this one moment and that's all we've got. Yeah. Um, and in one, a book that I read about 15 years ago is a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And he's an amazing spiritual guy. And, and The Power of Now is a really easy read and it basically just talks about the, the sort of fit mental approach to living in the moment. And uh, it's a very fascinating book with a lot of great information. He's also got some excellent um, podcasts. He does a really good one with Oprah Winfrey about the new earth. That's a 10-part podcast series. Each one's an hour. And I, The Power of Now for me was a life-changing book. Mm. And it's just, for example, if you're driving somewhere and you're running late, you can either spend the whole time in the car stressing and you know, and you get there one minute earlier and you're a wreck, or you can say, look, I've done my best. I'm yeah. going to be X minutes late. I'm just going to put some music on. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to live in this moment and I'll explain that moment when I get there. So it's just a little example. Um, so that's little thing one. Um, little thing two is pay attention to your breathing patterns and your sleep quality. So sleep's a pillar of, of our health. Our breathing pattern affects our whole being. And I think we've touched on today a number of things that our listeners can do to assess their sleep quality and their breathing pattern. And my third little thing is that I think we all need to connect with nature daily. 
I think that one of the biggest issues in our society is we're all moving away from nature and trying to control it. And without Mother Nature, we've got, we've got nothing. And I think, you know, little simple things like growing food in our backyards where we can, um, watching the sunrise when we can, mm. getting, you know, throwing our body into cold water, um, yeah. where, where our bodies are, have such an ability to deal with nature and we live in this protected air conditioned environment and you know we need to get away from screens and back to nature so yeah. that's the, they're my three little things amazing <sighs> yeah it was yeah that was an amazing episode so thank you again for right, joining absolute us absolute pleasure guys thanks for having me yeah see i told you right an incredible episode Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Dr. Bill was an incredible wealth of knowledge and just gave so much to you guys in this episode that we are so grateful for. Again, like I spoke about at the beginning of the episode, the stuff that we talk about needs to be tailored specifically to you. So please chat to your healthcare practitioners or reach out to us for a little bit more evidence or advice or help or to help you direct you to a practitioner that can help you. We would be more than happy to do that. Um, Dr. Bill has promised to come back and do an episode on pediatric sleep and pediatric breathing. And we're really excited to, to bring that to you guys. That is in the pipeline, so please stay tuned. Thank you again, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment, or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your